Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latina Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fallis. My guest today is Miranda Martinez. Professor Martinez teaches courses in Latinx Studies and Urban Cultural Studies in the Department of Comparative Studies. She is currently the director of the Latino Studies Program at Ohio State University. Welcome to this episode, Doctora Martinez. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Miranda, tell me about growing up in New York. Oh, it was... Um It was wonderful and awful at the same time. It was, um, I was back there recently and I always get very nostalgic because the city is so different now. Mm -hmm. um, but I grew up on the Lower East Side, the East Village. Um, I grew up in public housing with my mother. Uh, it was um, the 70s and the 80s. So it was this period particularly of the New York's fiscal crisis. and. Mm -hmm. It was a bad time to be poor in New York. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so me and the friends I grew up with were always kind of remembering just insane, you know, block after block of abandoned buildings mm -hmm. and, and just open air drug trade everywhere. And the AIDS crisis hit mm -hmm. us. It was quite quite harsh, but um, it was also a really fantastic neighborhood. It was... Um, kind of place where like in the spring and the summertime you just kind of went outdoors and you stayed outdoors just walking around looking at things mm -hmm. um to this day it's really interesting i've you know i've tried it if i sort of stand on any corner between like houston and 14th street in new york i will still meet someone that i know and hmm. it's like you know 40 years later right. um and it was also the 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 lower east side is famously a very radical neighborhood so it's a neighborhood where immigrants first arrived from europe um it's a neighborhood that was the cradle of the union movement um in new york and and the east coast um It was uh, a cradle for um, a lot of the early bohemian culture and arts and the mid-century arts culture. So fascinating people and really um, interesting, vital, um, experimental politics, you mm -hmm. know, that there was so much going on. And there was, if you were, you know, growing up poor, Um, it, you know, with a single mother in public housing, there was so much to draw on. Mm. Um, and a lot of the people that I grew up um, have ended up, you know, because of experiences that other people in the neighborhood offered them, you know, they became artists, they became mm. writers, they became musicians or scholars or whatever. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was really pretty great that way. I wonder if, um, you know, they, when immigrants arrive, um, I think... I always think of at least my neighborhood. I know as in Latin America, it's very common to just walk around the neighborhood and know your neighbors and talk to your neighbors and like you see people around, you know, and you walk to the store um, um, a lot of times, you know. And and I wonder if that neighborhood, being the way it is, even though it was a big city, right, urban place, um, still sort of 
gave him a little bit of home, uh, having to, you know, be able to see other people and not feel as isolated as, you know, when you go to a place like suburbia. <laughs> yeah, the... Um The interesting thing about the Lower East Side also is that it was certainly in the early, in the late 19th and the early 20th century until really the neighborhoods kind of collapse in mm -hmm. the mid, in, in, you know, in the, in the like the 50s, 60s, it started to decline. It was one of the most densely settled urban neighborhoods mm -hmm. in the world, mm -hmm. like Calcutta level, wow. like, Um, you know, people living on top of each other. The tenements were li built, literally, the tenement buildings, the long, narrow, sort of long apartments were literally built to just stack workers. Mm -hmm. um, so when Puerto Ricans arrived um, in the 19, started to arrive really in, well, Puerto Ricans were settled there really from the 20s and 30s, um, but really in large numbers in the, mm -hmm. in the 50s and going into the 60s. Um, It, it's interesting. What I want to say is that it's very dense and your people are all around you. And certainly if you're Puerto Rican, it was one of even it had like as a percentage more Puerto Ricans in the 70s and 80s than like East Harlem, which was, mm. you know, like mm -hmm. where, um, you know, where all of the where it's which is supposed to be like the the homeland in New York. But um <laughs> But you had y yours people all around you, but you also had all these other people around you, mm -hmm. which was really interesting. So it was dense, and you had this settlement, and you had your bodegas, and you had, you know, all of the things around you that that you know were named for home. Mm. But you had Ukrainians, you had Jews, you had Italians, you had Chinese. Um, it was just this, um, starting in the 60s and 70s, we had a, um, a really large influx of African Americans from the South. Mm -hmm. So it was a really neat neighborhood that way. It was very, in its own way, it, it, it was a very cosmopolitan place. At the same time, it was very homey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Um, Miranda, are you a first-generation college graduate? Um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So my, my mom dropped out of college, um, and my father was self-educated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was your experience like in, in higher education? Um, the, it was, um, to a certain degree, like, college was extremely, extremely liberating for me, mm. um, I had the benefits of New York specialized schools for for um, high school. New York, I went to Stuyvesant High School, which is a competitive math and science school, and you test into it. Very few black or Latino students um, there. But um, I tested in, but the trick is that it was a math and science school, and I was very much like a word writing lit person. So I had this awful average, and it was really competitive, and everyone told me I was gonna, you know, end up on, you know, just nowhere, whatever. It's just, <laughs> I ended up at Clark University. Um, I kind of insisted on going away for college, um, which I think was the right choice, although, you know, CUNY and, and SUNY were also possibilities. But I really, I really wanted to leave. I really wanted to kind of stretch my wings. And college for me was at the same time, um, as a lot of people say, sometimes like, College is the first time if you're working class or poor when you go away and you're like, oh, I'm really poor. Uh, mm -hmm. So 
it was definitely that experience of um of not uh not just you know realizing like my my look wasn't together and Mm -hmm. you know what I brought and I came you know my parents didn't drop me off I came on a bus and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff um and I also it was the first time that I really met actually upper class Latin Americans Mm. and that was very interesting for me I remember going to like the Latino studies organization and um, and meeting like very wealthy people from Puerto Rico, and then like I was sitting. I remember at one point I was like sitting next to a a child of a Salvadoran general, um, and I was like, "Whoa!" You know, at the at the time of the height of like the the the, the civil war, the civil war mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." That wow, we're all considered Latino here, but we're all really very, quite different. Very different backgrounds, uh, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and not necessarily a shared politics or outlook at not all. At all. Mm-hmm. Um, and grad school, by then I was kind of, you know, ready to really return to New York. I, I um, And that was its own challenge. That was... Um, uh, it took me a while to feel the difference, but that uh, a doctoral program is really very much almost exclusively um, an upper middle class to mm-hmm. affluent milieu. Um, I was again the only in in a you know at New York University in New York, which is a pretty mm-hmm. diverse place. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I think there was one other Latina student there very few African-American. Um, and it definitely, I remember when I was doing my research, mm-hmm. getting that thing of like, why is this interesting? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know um, I think there's, we um, often focus on um, first generation, you know, that experience of first generation students and, and even at the graduate level, you know, working class background and things like that. And what we don't talk about as much as graduate students, you know, with a working class background coming into higher ed and navigating the space, not only as maybe the only woman of color or the one, you know, a very few number, one of a very few number, but on top of that, uh, this issue of class, right? Um, and I remember hearing a black um, woman talk about that, you know, how she struggled, uh, you know, being a, a, a poor <laughs> uh, graduate student and not being able to take advantage of some like conferences or even job um interviews where they were asking candidates right to to pay for the trip ahead of time and then being reimbursed and that was a barrier and and you know and we don't always talk about this other very uh real experience i think with me i've noticed since you know meeting people who are like second generation scholars like their parents or professors they already kind of no, it's it's like the thing where actors, you know, this, you know, actor, celebrity, you know, celebrities right. have, having like these celebrity kids, they kind of know the rope so well. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're kind of starting from scratch, what you have is a kind of fictive 
relationship with a future self. You know, I literally, I can remember the moment I wanted to be in graduate school. I was just writing a paper and 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 thinking just completely happy, you know, <laughs> with my, like, you know, my index cards and my mellow yellow <laughs> and my little huge laptop for the period and yeah. um, and thinking to myself that I just want to keep doing this and mm-hmm. I need to figure out how to do this. And I also tell my students, like, I didn't translate that until I, I actually went, I, I can tell you this story, but it's, it's, I went, my mother, when I came home from college, my mother freaked out about what I was going to do. Um, uh, for with my degree in geography, because as she said it, that and a subway token will get you will will give you a ride somewhere. Um, and the the um, she she was she was going through the paper to find me jobs. I was signing up at temp agencies, and she she said, "Well, geography that's maps and like traveling." So American Airlines is interviewing for flight attendants, and <laughs> and so I went up to the Jacob Javits Center with a little suit on, and I sort of sat in a kind of catacall to be a flight attendant because geography, maps, and travel. Yeah, and. and um, I sort of sat there and I did a very nice little interview and this woman's, you know, kind of sat still sat, you know, and, you know, really, really sold it. You know, I, Mm -hmm. you know, just ma'am. Yes. American Airlines. Yes. She said, so basically you're a college kid who wants uh, who wants to go around the world a few times for free before you go to graduate school. And I, she saw that in you. And and I looked at her and I was, I was like, why? Yes. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. That is what I am. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and it just left, and I was like, "But it was, it was very funny." I was like, "Uh, yeah, yes, that's what I wanted to do." <laughs> but you know, it was totally. And then I, and then I was kind of like, "Okay, let's do this then." Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, uh, so, so you know, it's you know, you literally like watch Dead Poets Society, and you're like, "Huh," you know. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is so getting to where it's real and learning what it takes to manage it it that was a really long struggle for me mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. kind of um i i i uh i really struggled to for example adapt my dissertation to a book i didn't know how that was going to be done i didn't know how to kind of get the mentors to help mm-hmm. me do that mm-hmm. um uh, I really didn't learn how to ask for help um, because I was kind of a, afraid of looking like an idiot, you know, re- yeah, really serious. Yeah, I had a similar experience. And, syndrome, and, yeah. yeah, and I mean, you and I, um, we don't, there's not a lot of difference in age. So it wasn't like, oh, now things are better. <laughs> like, I think that still happening to our students, especially if they're first gen uh, college, you know, graduate, graduate students, um, or if uh, they are lower class or there is no history in their fam- families of like uh, the ac- academia, right? Like going into academia. And I remember having those feelings of like, oh my gosh, I think I'm too late into my program to even ask this question. You know, like right. I should know this answer. I should know this. And um, and so, um, you know, one of the things that I feel that we should normalize is asking the questions. Even if you are late in your doctoral program, if you haven't learned this, like ask it, right? And normalize it. If you're junior faculty, ask the questions that you think maybe you should know, but you don't. Um, 
you know, ask them. But but it is true. Like that experience for some, um, you know, they know the ropes. They just they don't even think about it. And then and then that makes us insecure, right? Because you're like, oh, my goodness, like, I, how did I not know that? Right, right. right. <laughs> um, and they become funny stories. But it is the feeling is there, right? Because that sort of feeds into um, maybe this imposter syndrome, syndrome, right, that we struggle with. Yeah, later yeah, as professionals. Mm-hmm. It's taken me a really long time to just let myself write things that interest me and actually trust that I can get it published. And mm-hmm. And like, oh, yeah, it okay, you know, it's not earth shaking, but it's interesting, good work. And, mm-hmm. and uh, let's do this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, the 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 interesting way that that um, imposter syndrome and perfectionism go hand in hand, right. um, and kind of trip you up in either direction that you go. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Um, so I know part of your research um, is on gentrification. Gentrification has become a pressing concern for many minoritized communities, especially in the last two decades. We have the financial and economic aspect of it, but gentrification also has a cultural impact. Uh, Can you talk to us about how this affects the Latinx community? And I can just give a brief example, and and you might have also studied this, but I lived um, in San Francisco briefly in um, 1992, and um, you know, and the Mission District was the place you know to be and to where I would find Latino culture. And the last time I was there, I've been back a couple times, but the last time was um, maybe four years ago or three years ago, and it has changed so much. Where you still have, you know, the Latino presence there, but there is so much um, sort of new, fancier shops and um, even restaurants, right, with this sort of fusion type of um, identity that's more expensive, that's not accessible for the community that lives there. Uh, So in terms of goods and services, but also obviously corporations buying out property that's pushing people out. So uh, that's sort of, I have seen this, you know, um, clearly that that difference between 1992 and four years ago when I was there. Um, So, um, so yeah, if you want to talk to us about how that really shapes a community. Yeah, I mean, when I when I did my my dissertation work on gentrification in the Lower East Side in the in the '90s and early 2000s, um, we were kind of talking uh, about a, almost a different kind of gentrification from what we're dealing with today. Um, and there, in gentrification studies, it's kind of common to. Um, distinguish different stages, right? Mm-hmm. So so early on when gentrification begins, you kind of often have like when it when it really started in the in the sixties even, there was, you know, people called like homesteaders, you know, whites buying, you know, attractive brownstones in in um low income neighborhoods. And then um 
going into the 80s and 90s, it definitely became, it becomes part of city policy and it becomes part of, there's more developer activity. Mm. So it goes from being kind of scattered individuals to a very concentrated effort. Um, and and you get this influx of high-income people. And now, you know, there's other, there's other, you know, and it's kind of, and then it's then it became consolidated as a kind of development regime, like pretty much everywhere, even rural areas now mm-hmm. have gentrification as the kind of playbook. It's become really synonymous with growth or redevelopment. Right. And now we're dealing with um, super gentrification and even beyond that speculative gent- gentrification. So super gentrification where you just uh, areas um, certainly this is m- more in certainly like um, areas of New York City like Soho where the property becomes so hyper valued or or um, that landlords will only really rent to like corporate um, right. uh, tenants mm-hmm. um, and you basically get these bizarre landscapes where there's just nothing but you know corporates you know chain storefronts and now you have this thing of um, the speculative turn where you have venture capitals and, and real estate trusts that are basically buying up tenant-occupied buildings. Um, and often their game plan is to basically make them unlivable for people right. so that they can turn them over. So with each turn, it's like a turn of the screw. Um, I think from that point of view, it's to talk about, um, you know, in my work, I'm I'm sort of getting interested in talking about just this kind of financialization of living spaces as a kind of violence and cultural violence Mm. is a piece of it. Um, And I certainly felt and concentrated on that in, you know, in my in my first in my work. Um, But there's a real violence to that. Um, it really is a kind of fiendish, literally turning of the screw on mm-hmm. people to 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 um, uh, really profit from displacement and misery as a kind of conscious choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think for the people that I was looking at in the in uh, I studied community gardeners who were facing the extinction of their gardens for development mm-hmm. but also um faced being displaced often these are these are often older um Puerto Rican gardeners who started their community gardens to as as places for people to children to wander in mm-hmm. and to socialize and to just be out in the open air um when the neighborhood was really at its at its most most um difficult mm. and um and then you had gentrifiers coming in and sort of saying no you know you need to run it better and you saw this process that's also essential to gentrification where the original inhabitants are kind of framed as problem children you know mm. who um so it's it's there's this discourse around gentrification that it leads to like uplift um which is you know garbage you know um and it you know and it frames whatever people were doing there before as kind of fundamentally criminal mm. or or framed as culture of poverty so there's this kind of um translation of common effort 
into you, you literally what you built, you know, and literally you had people, you know, I interviewed people who built beautiful gardens out of piles of toxic brick and dust, like literally started with, you know, the city bulldozed and they picked up bricks and they breathed in, you know, lead lace dust and they made it bloom. Mm. And then other people come in and are like, oh, no, you know, <laughs> we need a water feature. <laughs> you know? Right. So, right, right. Um, uh, and, you know, the, in those earlier days, people did find ways of living together. Um, and I thought one of the interesting things that I found was that, um, c- you know, there community gardens, the Lower East Side being the kind of neighborhood it was, community gardens were actually an interesting place because people could fight back. Mm. Um, and people sort of use those spaces in ways to say, uh-uh, no, no, we did this. You mm. you, you come in later and, you know, this is ours. Uh, and there was some back and forth on that, but that is still happening in gardens. Um, you know, uh, so in that sense, um, at a sort of interpersonal level, depending on the kind of willingness or well-being of the new people coming in, you can kind of find a way to negotiate some of it. But with this other stuff, the kind of displacement, this mm-hmm. kind of planned displacement, planned cruelty, there's there's just a, a way that beyond the kind of cultural displacement, the stress and violence of of always feeling you know your landlord waiting for you to die and and Mm -hmm. um or you know the um or even or even the weird thing that i find with people that i know that not that they're displaced but they have a deal and they can't move they can't go anywhere they can't do anything else they can't they their kids don't have anywhere to land near them so you're sort of you're always feeling, you know, hanging on by your fingernails. Mm. Um, it messes up your kind of standard of living, the ways right. that leaving your house to accomplish certain chores. You know, everyone focuses on, oh, new amenities and new services. You know, the supermarkets get better. But the supermarkets are filled with sort of insane stuff a lot of times that you can't afford. Exactly. So mm-hmm. it just... Um, and and you become you become more aware of how poor you are, right? Mm. So there's a kind of everyday pain of like your your kind of um, and there's just that odd feeling, you know. I've sort of been writing about gentrification and aspiration. This idea that um, a lot of times gentrification is presented as something that's you know supposed to be uplift, mm-hmm. and there's supposed to be some magic hook where you don't lose your house, but <laughs> then everyone loses their house, right? Uh, and it's just this weird bait and switch that um, I can only call cruelty mm-hmm. of a very particular American late capitalist kind. Right. So I'm thinking about like you just mentioned, like new services or new you know uh, shopping centers come in, and I'm thinking, well, if Whole Foods is replacing La Bodega, I mean the prices. Just to think about the price, who can afford them? Are the people in that neighborhood? going to be able to afford that. And if you just move the bodega, I don't know, 10 blocks farther, that is really, it's hard for people yeah. to just travel there. And, right? and by the way, the bodegas change, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. The, the bodegas end up with 
with, you know, the 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 old stuff, but also, you know, they have to kind of make their way and refurbish right. and raise their prices and do all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, it just gets, um, you just get this feeling of this squeeze and this um, conditionality to every aspect of your life, this feeling that it's, you know, late days, whatever you're doing, your kid's not going to stay there and, and mm-hmm. um, your your friends are dying and, and you, you're going to have to figure out how to age in place, you know, with a landlord who hates you and all of this other stuff, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's pretty it's pretty tough. Were the or are the community uh, gardens used as a place where people gather? Is there like conversations going on there? Is there um, is there also just people come? Is it a, a produce? You know, uh, is it is it feeding also the community? Um, there has been a, a growth in the number of urban farms. Um, Originally, the community gardening movement in New York certainly was associated with a kind of landscape gardening. Um, And the the city sort of regulations were kind of really hostile to to cultivation of food crops. Also, again, you're talking... um, Depending on where you are, you know, uh, you're talking about often pretty toxic land. So mm-hmm. there's all the the abatement and building, ra- you know, abatement or building raised beds. Right. Um, there's a kind of if you're if you're building to create food, there's um, a lot of work you have to do to get to. Um, conditions where there are kind of safe standards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think of example if you have an urban garden like stray cats, right? Um, right? And, you know, they get in there and you have toxoplasmosis and mm-hmm. God knows what else all over. So, mm-hmm. uh, so urban farms, so um, urban farms have grown, uh, are more and more work is done on that um and urban farms have grown more in places where there are larger spaces like the south bronx again boricuas you know puerto ricans very much but also caribbean people Mm -hmm. and latin americans um really literally scratching farmland back into Mm -hmm. urban urban brick dust you know Mm -hmm. beautiful large farms that feed people and and that are kind of tied to um, you know, ameli- ameliorating things like food deserts and mm-hmm, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and uh, also in parts of Brooklyn, Lower East Side, because we have this little patchwork, you know, it's very dense. Again, it's harder. Um, there are a few places that grow food, but but relatively few. Um, but they are, I think in every case, yeah, community gardens are social spaces. Mm-hmm. They're intensely social. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are places, uh, you know, in the summertime, you get your coffee, you go across the street and you plant yourself and you, you, it's bochinche and it's, you know, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. it's just chatting and talking, you know, the whole, you know, as the whole day wandering in, you know, doing an errand and coming back. A lot of places have programming. So they, Mm. um, uh, so uh, many of them have now like built-in stages, um, mm-hmm. and um, 
there are yeah they you know there's they're very often you know evening music film screening they're they're gorgeous that way they're really they're really wonderful that's great your current research is in the area of economic sociology and the emergence of financial capability as predatory lending or banking that targets vulnerable communities and I'm and I'm trying to think how this also connects to what we were just talking about, right? Gentrification and 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 the things that um, you described. So talk to us about this this new sort of interest. Well, this is actually a, a, a kind of old interest, and again, it comes from also the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. Very soon after I got out of from college. Um, I was, you know, in you know, you know, while I I was recruited to serve on the board of a of a credit union in my mm-hmm. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, like a lot of places, the Lower East Side at the time was redlined. There was literally no banking for like a hundred square block area mm-hmm. around where we grew up, where I grew up. Um, and uh, which is insane when you think of it now, because there's like a bank on every corner, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but there. Uh, a bank near my house folded and there was a community movement to create a a, a people's credit union. Mm-hmm. It's called Lower East Side People's Federal Credit Union. It's still there. It's actually prospered. And I was president there for many years. It was an interesting place because, I mean, it relates to gentrification because gentrification is capital driving you out. Mm-hmm. So... So having a place that's about reinvigorating circuits of capital going to poor people mm-hmm. uh, is is a kind of interest. It's kind of connected, you know, mm-hmm. getting people banking and, and service, you know, getting we actually did those loans, getting bodega owners mm-hmm. loans so they could upgrade mm-hmm. so that they could stay in business as the neighborhood gentrified. Mm-hmm. Like that was a loan that we actually did. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but I've always been interested, so I've stayed interested in that. I've written a few papers through the years on the credit union movement and stayed interested in it. But I've also been interested in this idea of overall, um, this idea that if poor people know more, that will fix what the market does to them. Mm-hmm. Um and and kind of what the the that the principal issue is that uh, inexperience mm-hmm. is kind of so like the subprime issue was often framed as uh, you know low income people got in over their heads because they didn't know better mm. that was a very common or they were greedy that mm-hmm. was a very very common you know they were they were either suckers or they were slackers and they wanted more house than they could afford and that was. Um, so even after the subprime debacle and the crash that followed, one of the really more than active regulation, what has replaced it is this, is this idea of financial education and financial capability. Mm-hmm. And what I've found is that people in the credit union movement have kind of Critically speaking, these are all people who say we need better regulations, we Mm -hmm. need to protect people. But there is this kind of interest in looking at the models for how people learn and talk about money, precisely because so many communities of color feel 
the presence of capital pressing on our lives, mm-hmm. um, the presence of money moving us around and moving us off of where we live, more people are like, I want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. So there's models, there's kind of competing models of there's there's a kind of deficiency model where, you know, low-income people are lined up in, in you know, church basements and taught how to write a check, even though who the heck writes a check anymore. Right. Um but there are also, um, you know, discussions like how do we get the capital, right, you know, and, right. and uh, I was just at a conference in Puerto Rico about um, the credit unions and cooperativas, as mm-hmm. they're called in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. And there was um, a woman speaking. Um, her name was Roanhorse. She was. I th- want to say Vanessa Ronhorse, but I could be wrong. Um, but she is Navajo, and she has a consulting mm-hmm. firm. And she, she kind, she said, you know, I think of capital as moving water, and I want to know how it moves and who moves it and for what reasons and how do we move it by us, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, um, and just people very interested in talking about arrangements, market arrangements and capital. So I think it's interesting to think about financial capability. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in critiquing the prevalent model because Um, But I'm interested in the work being done on using some of that to actually try to repair some of the harm Mm -hmm. that our current market arrangements do to people. Are credit unions, uh, I guess, popular among Latinx communities like is that something that people sort of are familiar with um, um, I know that there's a new or the first Latino credit union in Ohio uh, near to- Toledo um, and it's you know it's very um, uh, the efforts that is had in identifying as the Lati- the Latino credit union and so there's this aspect of like um, maybe understanding of how a credit union works. And I also wanted to know, uh, because it makes me think a lot about the concept of La Tanda and then Mexico yeah. is this use, you know, is used as a sort of um, savings, community savings model. And, um, you know, and, and everybody puts money on the pot. And then at the end of the month, one of those that have participated gets that savings. And so I, I don't know if that's sort of connected to that idea and how maybe that brings a little bit more trust among the Latino community to be part of a credit union or a cooperativa, as you said. Yeah, well, um, the kind of cooperative banking model has been um, it has been in the U.S., you know, since the late 19th, early 20th century. But it's definitely something that different immigrants groups um, brought with them. And in Latin America, yes, there are... Um, it maps very well onto traditions like the tanda mm-hmm. in 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 Latin America. Um, in in the Caribbean, it's called a susu that that circle ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about all of the other things, like the ways that um, in many um, 
villages and rural areas in Mexico, you have like the cooperative work share mm-hmm. ways that people share work to, to, for example, tend irrigation systems, or there's kind of like collective work that's actually kind of, you know, there's a kind of collectivization of certain mm-hmm. efforts. And mm-hmm. so um, that I the so the cooperative movement has been here, but then there are ways when groups come in and the model is here, that then you kind of um, the concerns and traditions and habits that people bring with kind of get mapped um, mm-hmm. more with low income credit unions more, and that's really where you have credit unions. Um, there's a particular model of low income credit unions or or um, they're called uh, community development credit unions. Um, overall, many credit unions in the U.S. that were started in the 30s have become quite wealthy and mm-hmm. are, are, other than the kind of membership piece where a member has is considered to have a share and that and that they're non for profit, they're they're nearly indistinguishable from banks. Mm. But um, for smaller places, you have. You have yes, this it uh, it really is interesting to again t- thinking about what it means to move away from that deficiency focus that pe- these people don't know about money or they're not going to know how to operate, but actually they know a lot mm-hmm. um, and um, are actually doing. I mean, the things that a Mexican immigrant does with their money is freaking amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, go ahead. <coughs> You know, that you have the ways that, you know, um, with food service jobs, for example, in New York, people um, find housing, often end up buying their own housing, send money home, send money not only to their family, but to collective efforts, Mm -hmm. um, community development efforts, um, infrastructure building in, in their home villages, like... It's like this insane multiplier that you have with people do with their earnings and, and what they do. Yes, that, that uh, what you're just talking about reminded me of when I, so there is a huge um, uh, Oaxacan immigrant community here in Columbus. And, um, and so I went to um, a town called San Sebastián in Oaxaca. Um, where many of them, you know, come from here in Ohio. And so I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to interview people that had connections with Ohio. And so I ended up uh, interviewing a woman whose son was the first one to arrive here from that community in, 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 in Columbus. And, um, and then, you know, in conversations with people there, she's like, oh, yeah, like after, you know, there were many people that had uh, moved from San Sebastian to here and send money. And so basically what you see is that the whole community buildings and houses have been built with the work that, you know, those men and women, women are doing here in Columbus. So Columbus or Ohio is, you know, part of that community in, in, a, in a way because a lot of the immigrants send their money, you know, for their families to build their own homes, to build a tiendita, to um, perhaps, like you said, um, um, there's a community development, right, for that for that particular community. So you do see that a lot. And what? I, so how is the credit union? And I don't know if that's part of sort of what you look at, uh, but you know, I think of a lot of 
predatory lending that's happening out there. And I don't know if the credit union has a role in protecting um, or preventing that from happening as much as as it does happen, especially, you know, most of the time, the people that end up in this, you know, fall into this predatory lending are the people that are the poorest, right? Or the, the ones that sort of need the most financial assistance. Um, and so there's in this, there's this cycle, right, that is very hard to, to, um, to leave, right, once you're in it, because uh, it creates more debt, it creates, you know, it's just a, a cycle of financial ruin, basically. It's, um, it's almost that cycle has become, I mean, it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. And it's become almost routine. Uh, it's, it's a common finding, it very commonly happens, you know, and I've it, done interviews with people doing this work who are coaches who are mm -hmm. who have kind of helped people build their credit score help people um, build their savings or buy a house and then once they're kind of out there what happens you know the the um their their mailbox right and their their email bo inbox blow up with offers mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. click here and you know low interest rate and blah 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 and all of a sudden all of these possibilities are there and and um and it just you know and another card and and mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so it it's one of the kind of maddening things about this is that at the community level you have all these people doing this amazing work of getting people of building community wealth, mm -hmm. um, trying to take control of development processes, and then just kind of this everyday predation. And again, people's own aspirations, people's own like curiosity, and right. and and because that translates, those offers translate as inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this tricky thing where it's very hard to tell people you have a great credit score now. Don't do anything yes. right you know it's just, it doesn't work so um so often it is cyclical mm -hmm. um and and people that i've spoke to do it's it's very very common that you you launch someone to business ownership home ownership and they're back in two years mm. so that's actually something that people are really grappling with it it presents a particular challenge um you the places that are tr are trying to deal with this you end up having to build a kind of larger more intricate local infrastructure yes to kind of shield people mm -hmm. and if you do have a good relationship if you can kind of build that relationship of trust of building people those those um good f those first loans that launch them then hopefully they come back and ask for advice, but you can't tell them that they have to come back to you, right? right. Uh, and and it, it's this also this challenge because as people get more sophisticated, they don't want to go to the same old cash box credit union. They want to go to like they want their credit union as they get more money to act like a bank. Mm -hmm. They want debit cards. They want credit cards. Mm -hmm. They don't want to, they want online applications. They want, you know, apps. Right. And all of that is quite expensive um, uh, infrastructure to get hold of. So there is in this movement a lot of work. It's, it's really tricky, right? You have these institutions, these low-income credit unions that on one level have to do this thing that no other, lend to people that no other people will mm -hmm 
you know, will lend to on good terms, you know, but then they also have to be kind of sophisticated institutions that will grow with people's tastes, mm-hmm. that can make larger dollar loans, that can that has all the bells and whistles that people are looking for so that they'll stay and they won't end up at a bank that is programmed to rip them off from jump. I'm looking at Wells Fargo, but I, you can delete that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to. <laughs> um, <clears throat> No, I'm thinking about, um, yeah, how especially the immigrant community, and I, I was part of that, right? Like uh, you get when you come to the U.S., and I don't know how it works in, in other countries, but um, when I came to the U.S., there was this pressure like to build your credit, to build your credit, and the only way to build your, your credit, which, you know, even as I'm, t- um, as I'm saying it, I know that I had thought about it. Like you have to get credit to build credit, which means debt, right, <laughs> in, in some way. Um, and so and I... Uh, can I add yeah. that the way that it's, algor- you know, kind of loaded, you not only have to have credit you have to show that you manage credit, Mm -hmm. which means that, um, and I actually go to these education meetings where someone is like, why is my credit score so low? I pay off everything. I have three credit cards and they're all at zero. And I just, and the the educator's like, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Like you actually, because guess who makes the credit scores? The credit companies. Mm -hmm. Um, You actually have to be in the game. Like Mm -hmm. you have to, you can't have a bunch of zero balance cards. That will only get you so far. That'll get you a good credit score. But you actually have to manage them. The, the, The deposit, the balances have to move around. And of course, we know that once you're in there tinkering with the balances and playing with the cards, they're going to go up, right? Right. So right. it's just this incredible. Um, it requires this. Uh, it, it's sort of. It's really. It's really comparable. What we do with credit and what we ask of people is really comparable to to like questions about like food and weight mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. Like like you know the idea that the U.S. is an ob- is an obesogenic society that everything is kind of designed to trip you up and we still scold everyone about their self control right. mm-hmm. and our credit works exactly the same mm-hmm. way and it's designed to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I remember falling into that trap, right? And nobody really around to educate me. I was seventeen, eighteen, right when. When this started, when you start, that's the first time you get bombarded with all this credit card, right? And I always thought, man, how irresponsible it is, right, to to offer all of this sort of unlimited, you know, <laughs> yep. credit cards to students, to college students, to set them up to, um, you know, to 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 have to carry debt, to um, default on their payments because there's no, they don't have enough money to pay off, you know, their debt. Um, and so, so yeah, I remember, I remember that, you know, and, and so what I wanted to say is that there's a lot of education that needs to happen, right, in terms of like immig- immigrant, immigrant communities that don't have the same sort of financial structure that we have here in the U.S. as newcomers understanding, you know, where to go and where to not go in terms of this financial game, credit card Yeah. Game. Well, you mm-hmm. also clearly the credit score needs to be reformed, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a crooked game that's designed to trip you up. Mm-hmm. So actually there is a movement and you've seen um, uh, the, the, 
the whole thing about alternate credit scores, for example, um, that um, using, you know, why can't you use regular utility payments? Why can't, you know, so, and there's actually now started, there's there's been some reform and movement on that mm-hmm. because it's so clearly been like this rigged game. And, and because, um, I mean, for better or worse, the I think credit card companies are like, oh, if we tinker with this, then a whole lot of people who never can have a good credit score will be in the market now. So it's inclusion, and we'll see what comes of that, or it's called financial inclusion. But mm-hmm. it does mean that um, people can um, – you you can acquire or improve your credit score by showing financial responsibility in other venues besides debting. Right. Um, And then, uh, but for example, and again, that turns to this question of like, like new new consumers, um, immigrant consumers do often run into this trouble, um, but they often are very clever and smart about finding ways to manage these, for example, the um, actually you mentioned the Toledo Latino mm-hmm. um, Credit Nueva Union. Esperanza. It's mm-hmm. called. Mm-hmm. Um, they're one of the places that started that really pushes um, a declining balance debit card. Mm. Right? It looks and acts like a credit card, but you top it up and then you spend down. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the. Um, Latino consumers really like that because you can you you have a card and you're swiping, you know, you're Mastercarding or you're Visaing, and you've got the little logo when you're at the at the till at the or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's something you can control, right? It's your own money. That's, it's yeah. it's your own money. You're not going <laughs> to get you're not going to get into trouble. And some places they'll have um, you can sort of tweak that, like you have a kind of deposit, and you can you can have a slightly higher balance. You kind you know, so like a you know like a hundred and twenty or a hundred thirty percent is. Mm-hmm. On the card, so if you do, you know, you're you're going a little above, but you're not into crazy, right. you know. So, uh, and I remember um, interviewing the manager of of Nueva Esperanza, and she said, particularly for undocumented people, that's a kind of powerful thing. She says it's mm-hmm. like you're hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. If you've got a Mastercard, you know, then you just look less undocumented you look more like you belong right <laughs> right, right um so the, the 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 interesting like interesting things and and the thing about those cards they're zero risk um but and traditional banks do have them but um traditional banks know that low-income people use them and they actually build in all these little fines and Mm. extra costs and reload things so that actually that really simple product, put the money in, spend the money, that ends up being um, this this tricky, expensive thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. because they know people need it um, and they know that they can just ding them on little bitty fines here and there. Again, predatory. But, <laughs> right. But but cooperativas and mm-hmm. credit unions um, can do it as a straightforward, you pay a monthly fee, here you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't, they're not interested, their, their model isn't based on, obviously some of their model is based on generating fee income, mm-hmm. but not 
not in in an abusive unreasonable yeah yeah, yeah. or like uh, hidden fees right, right, this is right. that you didn't realize like how much is going to cost you at the end of the month but but I really like what you're saying about uh, the undocumented community right because they're often also left out of that service right they can they don't have a social security number so they can't really open a, uh, a bank account and everything that you know we how we operate in the U.S. is through that, right? Having a a, a bank account, even to rent a you know to rent a house, an apartment, um, a lot of your financial you know ser- services yeah. that you need have to be tied to a checking account or some sort of bank account that you have, um, and that can be complicated for undocumented the undocumented community. It actually is possible even for conventional banks to do what's called ITIN lending. So mm-hmm. on the on the ta- the number that looks like a social security right. number, but it's not. Um, especially many banks are unwilling to do it because they're afraid of um, running afoul of of banks, you know, mm-hmm. bank transparency laws and um, and. Um, but a lot of credit unions do. It also, though, leads to a problem about reporting, particularly during the Trump administration. There was this willingness to leverage data in order to trap people. So, that, you know, there are places making um, ITIN loans of all kinds. Mm-hmm. I think um, Nueva Esperanza, they make food truck loans based on ITIN. They make home loans based on ITIN. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a lot of lending, but they're not always necessarily reportable, and they often have to keep using non-traditional lending, non-traditional credit checking. So letters, you know, things like that, because um, it's not it's um, not necessarily safe, actually, to build a credit score when you're undocumented the way that the um, abusive data has has um, become kind of entrenched. Right. Um and and you know what it, it also depends like one of, one of the things that i realize is like how also where the branch of that particular financial institution institution is located is um the information that uh, is how comfortable or how savvy they are about working with a particular community right so um i tell you this because I, we used to house international students briefly you know before they got their their dorm or their apartment and so one of the things that i would help them do when they got here is to go open your checking account and go open you know and so I don't live on campus, you know, like near campus. So I, you know, I would take them to a branch that was near my house. And this was international students. So they didn't, they didn't have a social kingdom. They have their passport and, you know, and they didn't know what to do. They would say, no, you can't open one. (laughs) And I'm like, of course they can open one like this. They do it all the time and they need one, you know. And it was um, so so then we would come to campus to one of the branches here and they knew exactly what to do. You know, they so so it just um, also struck me as, you know, how the location of the financial institution also um, can either serve or not the community. Right. There's a backstory to that, too. Um, A couple of years ago, uh, an anthropologist named Lisa Servan did a study of payday cashers. She worked at one for summers. Mm-hmm. And um, she actually argued, it was a little controversial, she argued that um, 
that one of the reasons that people go to payday lenders and check cashers as their main banking places because those places are actually familiar and kind of homey. The cashiers speak mm. Spanish, um, and uh, um, they're they're often you can negotiate with them. I mean, you're negotiating with them the terms of horribly horribly extortionary loans, but yeah, you negotiate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, a credit union person would answer, we do that and we don't charge 300% interest. So, mm-hmm. um, but the, um, th- th- there's been other, other work has kind of shown that that kind of, the, the hostility, the coldness, the kind of, um, uh, inaccessibility that one gets um, in banks is by design. Mm. Um, they they definitely want your money, but they don't want to have to deal with your warm body in the building. Um, so they push people. One of the purposes of, uh, you know, they make money on fees. Um, mm-hmm. They lose money on staff and people talking to people. So the more they can push people to online platforms, you know, so the kind of, you know, starting in the 80s, regulatory changes really made it possible for banks to have a model based on feeing, 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 mm-hmm. feeing, um, and, and, and interest. Um, and they really didn't, and then you eventually, then you had the whole secondary market for mortgages and repackaging of loans and things like that. So the whole retail end of, you know, Mr. Jones at the desk, you know, waiting to shake your hand and close mm-hmm. the deal or whatever, mm-hmm. is just not a moneymaker for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is really, you know, and it is true that credit unions, um, this is something that they struggle with. Credit unions have a much higher percentage of their uh, costs associated with people, people mm-hmm. um, who can talk to people, uh, and you spend more time with people explaining what the heck is a credit union and mm-hmm. this is what this loan is going to look like and if they have to do alternate credit you go through um you know you go through them bringing little letters from their son and you know and it's really i've actually when i was at lower east side people's federal i mean i was a loan officer sort of fill in loan officer and and it was really cute you know like a little hand you know i give my mom's a hundred dollars a week you know <laughs> it's like and that was and you put that towards the loan and then, you right. know and, and the 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 you know, so you end up having to kind of meet people where they are and kind of accumulate the paperwork because you do have to document the reasons mm-hmm. that you think this is a mm-hmm. good loan. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, um, you know, and and then and it has to be documented in a way that you can pull it out and show it to an examiner. Um, and very often, uh, you know, American examiners are uh, <clears throat> are uneducated or even kind of hostile to these small um, yeah. these small credit unions and um, institutions that do things in unorthodox ways because they don't they don't understand 
the why or the wherefore or, or how it could possibly result in a sound loan. Hmm. Yeah, and so what you're describing too, it it, it it tells me a lot about why maybe the Latinx community is drawn to this, especially older. Because <laughs> I think of my mom. My mom goes to the bank sometimes and like, you know, wants to request something, and I'm like, "Mommy, you you can just like wait for the statement or wait." No, but I have a question. You know, yeah. <laughs> and. <clears throat> And so that sort of um, personal touch, right, and, and understanding, and in, and in some cases, um, having to educate your your customer, right, of uh, maybe perhaps for us basic things, although, you know, when it comes to like big loans, I still like get a headache, you know, understanding all the language. Um, but definitely, um, that could be, you know, is attractive and necessary for for lower income uh, communities of color, right? That to have that, to really understand it and to feel safe, right? To, to come in and to know that they're not there to get your money, uh, but they're there to help, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I think in good places, people do come with problems with like weird mail and weird, you know, those, those kind of out of the, out of the sky lightning bolt mean letters that you, that, mm-hmm. you know, or charges that happen to you when you're low income and, and vulnerable. And, right. and, um, very often people take, you know, take those papers and they take them over to the credit union to, to help them get sorted out. Right. Right. Miranda, what are you working on right now? What are what are your next projects? I know you have a couple things going on in Puerto Rico and maybe other places. Yeah. Well, um I am the I am looking I'm working on a project that is looking at financial services it, it, and and but right now I'm concentrating on looking at the movement and the growth in cooperativas in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico after Hurricane Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also working on another project of looking um, with my colleague Katie Boyland. We're working on uh, looking at um, uh, gentrification in Columbus and mm-hmm. particularly its impact on on immigrants and 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 uh, black communities mm-hmm. um, and the the extraordinary the, the extraordinary growth of this city in 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 recent years um, and it's kind of rapidly escalating unaffordability uh, it, I just find it really interesting so um, we'll be working on that over the next year um, but over the summer uh, I've um, I made one trip to Puerto Rico to attend a conference and I'm going back in a couple of weeks to do mm-hmm. interviews mm-hmm. Uh, there's just fascinating stuff happening with the movement in Puerto Rico uh, after the kind of complete social breakdown mm. of um, Hurricane Maria, you know, the, the four-month-long um, blackout that in many places uh, mm-hmm. extended for, in, in some places it was like a year before right. they got power back on. Um, in many places, especially in, in rural communities, the cooperativas were up and running within a couple of days. Uh, there were places where... Um, they f- they had to work out how to keep like ACH transfers going and you had people kind of driving around in their cars and transferring money mm-hmm. um like in like broken in their cars you know to in order to kind of so that people had money after the disaster and right. so that people could start to rebuild um so there was 
people noticed that and, and commercial banks and foreign banks basically all closed and left the island within a few months, or, or not all, but many did. Mm. Um, there was a kind of uh, flight of a lot of commercial banks leaving people high and dry. Um, so there's been this explosion uh, of membership. Now something like uh, one in four Puerto Ricans belongs you know, to a credit union. They have a different model there historically. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning about it. Uh, and I'm talking to the people who were involved in a movement to get more capital, especially from the federal government, for these credit unions so that they can grow. Um, and it's... They're implicated in a whole lot of sort of planning um, and and possibilities, you know, for for the island. There's uh, the question of solar power, of mm-hmm. getting more mm-hmm. people on rooftop um, solar right. power. Um, so I'm talking to people who are figuring out and, and solar rooftop solar is getting more and more popular, but it's still you know, it's based on tax credits or it's linked to mortgages, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a kind of middle class project because they're expensive to put on. Yeah. You get long term savings, but you basically go underwater like twenty thousand dollars or so for someone with this, you know, small, poor house. So. Um, you know, I talked to people who were trying to figure out how can you do solar lending, sound solar lending to a really poor person, really so that like, so let, like from the day that they're installed, like the the cost of that, what it will cost them monthly will be and remain lower than what they save. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's really tricky to do. You have you have to cobble together the tax credits. You have to use secondary capital. Um, you have to you know use donations. Um, but it's it's really interesting in trying to figure out how to make solar lending and and that means yeah you can't a really poor person who's not who can't afford even a mortgage say they own their house outright. Mm-hmm. Um, has very little credit score, you know, is, 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 um, how do you get solar panels on that person's house and how do you, you know, and, and not tell them like, you'll be fine in 20 years, you know, um, (laughs) or a lot of solar loans are 50 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but so if from jump, you know, and in some places where they've done it, the person's say, you know, bills change, dropped like $3 a month. But so the loan, needs to let them capture like some part of that savings right right right, right. Well, so that's great. really interesting to so I'm going to be talking to more people about how they're doing that mm-hmm. and uh, um, and then the the um, the gentrification project we're still kind of working out our plan of attack but I think right. uh, we're going to start with interviews and doing uh, participant observation at you know, a few different neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm very excited about bo- both projects, but also um, I feel there's a sort of hope, right, that despite all the terrible, terrible um, conditions uh, of Puerto Ricans after hur- Hurricane Maria or, you know, shortly after that, um, that the work of cooperativas is having a, a positive impact on the yeah, island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um, the other side of that is that um, the island has been under a kind of um, 
very undemocratic receivership for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, what's called La Junta, the mm-hmm. financial board that is basically managing budgets and is able to mandate school closures, service cutbacks, pension dissolutions, mm-hmm. all kinds of activities basically with no public answerability. Um, so there's a real hunger for the kind of democratic participation. Right. It's not just getting capital, but it's getting capital on terms of dignity mm-hmm. for Puerto Ricans who are, you know, just trapped in this multiple, the, 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 this the, the sort of colonial predicaments mm-hmm. converging on Puerto Rico have been really overwhelming. Um, so... Cooperativas are also places that that are about having a, a certain kind of voice attached. You know, being able to talk about the money, who mm-hmm. has it, and where it goes. You know, mm-hmm. of course. Miranda, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed myself. Thank Great. you. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Mm-hmm.